lives. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us this opportunity to be here this morning, to fellowship this way, to break bread as family, the very bread of life. Thank you for truth that sets us free, Father. Thank you for perspective that continues to bless us out. We're so very grateful for this time of year to be able to remember your son, his birth, and his purpose. We do pray for those that can't be with us here this morning, that earnestly desire to be here, but for a variety of reasons cannot be. We pray that you return them to the fold as soon as possible. Your will be done, of course. We pray also for those that are still lost in this world without hope that they be humbled and receive saving faith before it's too late. We're most grateful and thankful, of course, for all the work that your Son, our Lord and Savior, accomplished on the cross 2,000 years ago to make a morning like this a reality for us to rejoice in. We do just ask for your blessings on this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, part 46 of Proverbs 17, Wisdom. We've been away from it for a little bit. Uh, a couple of special messages. Um, but nonetheless, we've been given so much to think about during all this uh, on the topic of giving. Uh, it even included our series, or excuse me, our curriculum even included a special message a couple of Sundays ago on this very subject. Um, and then, of course, last Sunday we had the Christmas special, which also emphasized Thanksgiving. So the spirits had an awful lot to say. Here's the crux of uh, last week's message, our Christmas focus, gratitude from a root of love. So there's like a result, um, this, this fruit of this love, this fruit of righteousness, and it's gratitude. And that's one of the key indicators of certain things existing in your soul, like love, like righteousness. So that's what the Spirit wanted us to focus on this Christmas, was just being grateful, you know? We have so much to be grateful for. I think we, we use that kind of like a punchline. Oh, I have so much to be grateful for. And it never sinks in, or it often doesn't, until the Spirit sort of you know, wakes us up with messages like he's been giving us. And so I'm very grateful for the messages themselves, and I hope you are as well. So again, our Christmas focus was gratitude from a root of love. I did receive a lot of wonderful feedback from some of you and as well as those that listen overseas like a couple of old friends of ours for example this person from uh where's M joshua from kenya yeah from kenya joshua mokua who i just adore wrote me this thanks man of god for such great teachings um, the prophet daniel said that before the close of the age, knowledge will increase. 
This knowledge has made the world a global village. A few years ago, we were using the post office and aerograms to communicate with friends internationally. This took many days to get feedback. Now see, you post a message for me, and I get it immediately. Very wise man. Thanksgiving is a complex subject indeed. How do we tell that what people say or do is sincere? That book, the heart has written and kept many secrets. The heart is deceitful. Who can know it? It is only God who knows what is in the heart. We should always ask God to search our hearts. God bless you abundantly, your brother, Joshua Mokua. So much of what the spirits had to say <clears throat> for weeks now pivots on Jesus' words up here in the board. Acts 20, 35, part B. It is more blessed to give than to receive. More blessed to give than to receive. Sign Jesus, eventually. And so that says a lot about this recurring theme of God's economy. Uh, how things work here on earth. How God designed them to work, with emphasis on design. This is his purpose. This is how he meant it to be. He wanted us to be blessed when we give. In other words, to encourage us to give more. And this isn't about stuff. Do you know what I mean? Stuff is a symptom. Stuff is something we might give, but it's deeper than that. It's a giving attitude. It's an attitude of gratitude. The fruit of that might be giving this or that, but as the Spirit's been pointing out, it's the attitude that counts. It's a giving attitude. Um, so he had me jot down a few things uh, where this might apply in your lives, all of which the Spirit has amplified over the past few weeks up here on the board. It is more blessed to give. What, though? Well, Thanksgiving seems to be front and center for the last few weeks, at least. So giving thanks is a big one. And there's no stuff involved with giving thanks. You might give a thank you card or something like this. So there, I guess there's stuff, right? There's artifacts of Thanksgiving. But Thanksgiving is or has been the emphasis as of late. So that's definitely something that we're blessed by giving. Time and energy. Every time I come here, I think about, you know, how many people it takes just to keep this building looking the way it is, heated the way it is, the driveways cleared, uh, the bathrooms cleaned, the messages presented, the messages recorded, the messages put on the website. Uh, there's a lot of moving parts to a ministry like this one. And so there's a lot of time and energy that goes into just this little ministry in North Dighton. Um, love and forgiveness. How about that? And then you. Romans 12.1. You. You say, what does that mean? It means you. It means give you. It means to dedicate all of you to him. Because that's what he wants. We have a jealous God, right? 
He said, I created you for a purpose. And then I saved you. When you were completely unworthy, I saved you. So, you. Whatever that means to you at this moment in time, I know the more mature you become, the more, the bigger, the larger you becomes. But nonetheless, you're blessed when you give you. During our special giving message, we looked at one of the most transactional forms of giving we've got. And this might be one of those artifacts I was speaking to earlier. Transactional, though. In other words, it's a lot. You know, money. That's the one everybody's everybody's favorite subject. But that's what he chose to use as the launching pad of the, the lessons in the message, the special message on giving. It was money. As the Spirit's taught us so many times over the years, a message on giving that uses finances as the primary example isn't, and I've got in my notes, all capitals, isn't, is not actually about finances. It's really not. It's actually about heart. It's actually about motivation. It's actually about love and gratitude. That's what it's about. It's not about dollar bills or checkbooks or any of that. It's about heart, motivation, love, gratitude. And if you've been following along with the messages over the past couple of years even, it's about bearing good fruit, as Paul wrote. Go to Philippians 1, verse 9. Philippians 1, verse 9. Philippians 1, verse 9. It's not about finances. That's just the nerve, I guess you might call it, that the Spirit likes to pluck. Because it tends to get our attention. Especially in America. Philippians 1, verse 9. Look at what Paul writes to the Philippians, verse 9. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness, filled with it, motivated by it. The wind in your sails, filled, remember plural, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Never forget that. That when you're filled with the fruit of righteousness, God is glorified. Up here on the board, the fruit of righteousness from Philippians 1.11, being righteous, thinking and doing what's right in God's eyes, is the wellspring of blessings. It bears much fruit. God desires so much that we are blessed. He disciplines us when we veer off path to guide us back to the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And that's something we noted in the past in Hebrews 12, 11. The whole idea, in other words, is to get us to bear this fruit. And the only way you can bear this fruit is if you're right, hence righteousness, if you're right in his eyes. 
Which is why Paul says, I want you to grow in knowledge and discernment. I want you to understand. We just read it. I want you to understand what it means to be right in God's eyes. Because I know, as well as you probably do, I know a lot of so-called Christians that think being a swell guy is actually righteous. And it's not. It's actually not. It's are you or are you not oriented to this word? That's it. You don't have to be personality plus. Everybody in the neighborhood doesn't have to love you personally. It means are you right here? Are you oriented with this book, with his word? That's what it means to be right, to live right, to think right in God's eyes. And when you have that, when you lambano, when you possess that, then you bear good fruit. One of those fruits is you're blessed, the blessing of gratitude. And so that's what the Spirit's been teaching us, filled with that fruit of righteousness, of being right. Again, being righteous, thinking, doing what's right in God's eyes is the wellspring of blessings as a favor to us, God desires so much that we are blessed. He disciplines us when we veer off path to guide us back to the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Hebrews 12, 11. So in other words, he does us that great favor of keeping like the, you know, the bowling alley bumpers. Remember those for the little kids? You put them up so you don't go in the gutter, right? He, he bumps us back in. And that's what discipline looks like. As Paul wrote, God wants us to be filled, pleroo, with this fruit of righteousness, which, as I've taught you in the past, means to be filled so abundantly that it is like wind in your sails. You say, what does it mean to be filled? What does that mean? It means he fills your sails, you know, like a sailboat on the sea. When you're filled, the sail goes poof, and you move. And that's what it means to be filled this way. This kind of filling is what gets you out of bed in the morning with proper motivation. In fact, as Paul prays for it on behalf of the Philippians, he specifies the fruit of all fruits, the highest order fruit we've got, love. I want you to have this love. I want you to have this fruit of righteousness. It's the first one listed as the fruit of the Spirit. In Galatians 2, right? I want you to have this fruit, especially. I want you to have this love. And so he calls it out, specifically, as the ultimate litmus test for righteous living. You ever, you ever notice, like, when you become, you know, you get stuck in your own sin, you start living in some kind of awful sin or something like that? Where's the love? All of a sudden you're like, I don't have a whole lot of love for anyone or anything right now. Why is it escaping you? Literally, it's in Holy Scripture. It's because you're not right with Him. And therefore, you're not blessed. So Paul prays on behalf of the Philippians that they have love, which is the ultimate litmus test for righteous living. So this has been the gist of our messages on giving all along, even. It's to understand, within the context of God's economy, that giving results in blessing. And that's in perfect harmony with Jesus' own words that we saw at the start of 
the message, Acts 20, 35, right? It's more blessed to give. And so the greatest blessing of all that we realize when we're right with him, the fruit of that righteousness is love. Is love. That's that highest order fruit of all fruit. It's not that kind of love that we have for others when we have affection for them because of who they are. That's what we call subjective love. That love depends on the other person. Rather, it's that love we have because of who we are in Christ. That's the kind of love that's in view here. Because of who we are, we have a special love that emanates from us. And it is directed towards others. And so we might say that we love others that way. We pour our love upon them the way that God poured it on us when we were undeserving. That's the model. We pour it on others that just as well might be undeserving. You say, they don't deserve my love. Well, stop for a second there. God poured that same kind of love on you when you were an enemy of his. So who are you? That's the point. So it's an objective love. So it's the same brand of love that Jesus took with him all the way to the cross. That kind of love. It's the same kind of love that is expected to energize us when we understand Jesus' words. Go to Luke 14.26. Luke 14:26 Luke 14:26 <clears throat> This gives us that context or that magnitude of this kind of love. Luke 14:26 reads, <clears throat> "If anyone comes to me, and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Those are some strong words up here on the board, just to give you a little bit more on that. For clarity's sake, hate versus love in context in this passage, Jesus uses the relative term, hate his own father, etc., to emphasize how love for him trumps all other loves, supremely so. And we've went over this several times in the past. That love that we're given for him is so great that every other love, by comparison, is like hate. This is in conjunction with bearing our own cross, which gives love itself context. Now here's where we're going to pause for a moment. Love is both the motivator and the blessing. Both the motivator and the blessing. So you might say, wait a minute. You're suggesting that love is both the cause and the effect? How can that be? Love is both the cause and the effect? 
indeed. That's the way God has designed it. Let's look at love's most obvious fruit. In other words, the, the transactional part of love, which is grace. Because grace is just an expression of love. So let's look at grace. Think about grace for a moment. If we think of ourselves as cups, as we often do, just a cup, a vessel, an, a, an empty vessel, um, with a certain capacity, depending on our maturity. The more mature we are, maybe the cup's bigger. get more capacity for grace and love. If we visualize this, then when we think about our cup being in God's economy, God fills our cup with grace. That's the cause. And as our cup overflows, that's that Greek word parasuo, this forms the effect. It overflows. There's the effect. So here's the cause, and here's the effect. Since grace is primitively designed or defined as the expression of love, we can rightly conclude that love is both the cause and effect. Love is both the cause and effect. Again, up here on the board, let's just run with this for a little bit. Jesus uses the relative term, hate his own father, to emphasize how love for him trumps all other loves. Supremely so. This is in conjunction with bearing our own cross, which gives love itself context. Love is both the motivator and the blessing. Now, the apostle of love, which is John, had a lot to say about this. Go to 1 John 4.16. 1 John 4.16. Let's develop this thought a little bit further. Cause and effect. 1 John 4.16. 1 John 4.16. Reads, so we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Verse 17 By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected or matured in love. And then here's the critical verse, verse 19. We love because... He first loved us. Do you see the dynamic? I just cause and effect. We love, right? That's the effect. It's just in reverse order. Because he first loved us. That's the cause. There you have it, then. Verse 19. And arguably the simplest representation of God's economy in the Bible. If we're to net it all out in the, in, you know, the, the least common denominator, the, the, the most simplest terms even, if we're to net it all out, God's economy, this thing, this, this sort of living, moving organism, 
God's economy, where grace flows as currency, right? And love is the motivator of all of it. Here you have it. We love because he first loved us. Up here on the board, God's economy. God fills our cup with love by grace, and our love overflows into the laps of others by grace. You see it? That's God's economy in a nutshell. That's what he's been teaching us for months. It's funny how it works, isn't it? We go through all these like complex exercises, like mental gymnastics, and you know, we go to verse after verse and passage after passage, and we compare scripture with scripture, and we, we develop this sense of awareness of this thing called God's economy. And somehow grace is always right there, love is always right there, other sort of, I guess you'd call them artifacts, are right there. You know, like forgiveness, uh, peace. They're, everything's sort of in the sphere of God's economy. And at the end of the day, he says, okay, now you're ready for the simple form. Right? The simple form is what's up here on the board. This is God's economy in a nutshell. God fills our cup with love. So he loves us first. That's 1 John 4, 19. By grace, this happens. And our love overflows into the laps of others by grace. We love because he first loved us. That's literally God's economy. And when we function that way, the economy goes round and round. And it's beautiful. It's beautiful. So, love and grace are both the cause and the effect. Welcome to the incredible beauty of God's economy. Now, just think about this. In God's economy, he is responsible for all the blessings since his grace and love are both the cause and effect. If it weren't so, we'd have something to brag about, right? I mean, if somehow we were the cause, let's say, our fleshes might seize the moment and stake a claim to self-righteousness. Right? We'd say, obviously, I'm the cause. Obviously. Well, who's the focus on at that point? You. That's your flesh trying to take credit. We call that creature credit, which is not the same currency that God uses in his economy, which is grace. It's the currency that is used in Satan's economy, creature credit. We try to infuse it and take credit. Or if we were somehow responsible for the effect, our fleshes would take some credit yet again. Therefore, the only righteous perspective is the godly one, which the Bible clearly defines as God being responsible for both cause and effect. In other words, he doesn't want us to make that grave error of taking credit for any of it. He says, I first loved you. This is exactly what we just read in short order in 1 John 4.19. I first loved you. I filled your cup by grace with love. I filled it so abundantly 
that it overflowed. And it overflowed into the laps of others. But if I didn't first do this, this wouldn't happen. This is the cause, this is the effect. And you imagine all of this lining up in a little economy, and it just goes whoop, whoop, cup to cup to cup to cup to cup, right? It's like that. And that is beautiful, because that's what blesses us all out and what brings glory to God. Again, the only righteous perspective, then, is the godly one, and the Bible teaches us it very clearly. God is both cause and effect. So when we net out to the simplest of practical terms, we really have... You still in First John? Yeah, verse 19. That's literally like the simplest description of God's economy, if you think about it. We love because he first loved us. That's it. Cause and effect. If we continue with the context of this passage, John gives some contrast for the sake of integrity to this economy. Look at verse 20. He says, if anyone says, and just, you know, like talk is cheap, right? If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And his commandment we have, or this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Hmm. That we keep, this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. What's the law that's pervasive in the New Testament? It's the law of love. And so we're commanded to keep it. And it's not burdensome. But that takes a little perspective, right? It has a huge dose of gratitude. All I have to remember is that God filled my cup with love. That's all you have to remember. This is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. I kind of like the idea that God fills my cup with love and I get to spill it out over into someone else's life. I get to fill someone else's cup with that same brand of love. But I didn't have it to give in the first place. My cup was empty. It wasn't until God filled my cup that I had an abundance of it to give to someone else. And so I say, thank you, Lord. Thank you for the privilege, the honor of filling someone else's cup. And in that dynamic... With that flow, you're blessed. But you've got to have the right perspective. In other words, living and abiding in God's economy isn't a burden. It's a blessing. It's a blessing. We are blessed with realizing 
holy love as it's poured into us by grace. We say this is magnificent. God pours his love into my lap? Certainly wasn't merited, hence the word grace, because that's the definition of grace, unmerited favor. Certainly wasn't it merited, but yet he did it anyways. He found a way to bless my socks off, hence the cross itself, hence the start of the spiritual life. He found a way to do this thing. For that I'm eternally grateful. So we're blessed with realizing holy love as it's poured into us by grace, and then we're blessed yet again when that love pours out of us by grace. Stitch God's family together, bunch of cups in one economy, stitch that all together, and you've got the flow of grace and love comprising an economy where all are blessed and God is glorified. Hmm. Paul used the highly relatable example of people giving money, which again is just a byproduct. But it's highly relatable because we all deal with it. And so he used it. This example of people giving money, which they realized was given to them by God first. Go to 2 Corinthians 8, verse 1. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 1. And so we have a very, very practical, specific example of what the Spirit just laid out for you. He gave you pure doctrine just then. He said, look, this is how I do business here on earth. This is my economy. Do you see it? That's it. It's just filling cup, overflow. Fill cup, overflow. Fill cup, overflow. That's my economy. You're blessed. I'm glorified. Boom. Okay, don't just talk theoretics. Don't just talk theoretics. Don't just talk the talk. Walk the walk. That's what Paul was encouraging the Corinthians to do. 2 Corinthians 8.1 We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia... For in a severe test of affliction, their, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected... But they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. In other words, do the same. Verse 7, But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, See that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. Up here on the board, not as a command. Paul didn't command the Corinthians give to the ministry. He wasn't commanding it. 
He, like any good shepherd, tried to lead them to the blessings of giving that are realized to the giver's account. So his motivation was never money. Money was just that thing, you know, the relatable thing. Rather, it was that the sheep be blessed. Again, verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. You can see his heart. This is why I'm doing this. This benefits you up here on the board. This benefits you. Paul was teaching the Corinthians that giving was to their benefit. Likewise, giving to the ministry is to your benefit. It's to your benefit. If you think with human rationalism, though, you arrive at the opposite conclusion thinking giving is to the receiver's benefit primarily. In other words, okay, I'm going to give, but it's really for them. That's wrong thinking. And that's what he's been teaching us. Jumping forward a little, look at verse 15. Verse 15, As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. This is what sharing looks like among folks who abide in love. Everyone's needs are met. This is not about wants. You can do whatever you want to, you know, give someone something they want. Maybe they, ah, oh, I'd really like to have that purse or something. I don't know. And so, you, you know, you give them it. It's not a need. But that's, you know, that's not what's in view here. We're talking about needs. We're talking about God's promise to his own children. That if he takes care of the birdie, he's going to take care of you. Well, Guess who he uses to complete or fulfill that promise to you? He uses others. When their cup overflows, it overflows into yours. When you have a need, you have an empty cup, you have a need. God ensures that someone in your periphery, and this is how he orchestrates the whole thing, pours into your cup. And you say, thank you, Lord. Thank you. Up here on the board, Matthew 10, 8. NASB, freely received, freely give. This is the supreme example that God has given us. If we ever get familiar with this love that we've been shown, all we have to do to prime the pump, as they say, is remember Jesus. Up here on the board. Jesus Christ is the inexpressible gift. If you ever get, you know, stale, if that exuberance, if that desire to grace someone else out, to give X, Y, and Z, all you have to do is remember Him. All you have to do is remember Him. Because that floods you immediately with, oh yeah, now I remember where I came from. Now I remember my cup was completely empty. No way to fill it. And God came along, found a way to fill it, and he did. And it started with Christ. And that's all you usually need to prime the pump so you can get going again in, in his economy. 
To help with that, our last two weeks blog spoke to this up here on the board. We had a Christmas blessing on the 25th. And before that, we had how long does gratitude last on the 18th? Good primers, good friendly reminders of the inexpressible gift that we have so much to be grateful for. And we can say that until we're blue in the face based on one fact right there. You don't need day in it. You shouldn't be high maintenance, right? That's the point. We shouldn't need, you know, daily quote-unquote blessings. We only need one to prime the pump. That's the gospel. And so he's been giving us so much to be grateful for, but gratitude, and I'm thinking even way back, the Concentric Circles blog, it all begins with him and then emanates from there. It's atomic. The atomic center, if you would, of our gratitude is him. So to prime that pump, to get back, we just get back to where we were where we came from. So there's been this momentum that the Spirit's been building up in this congregation, even through the blogs. For example, if you synthesize both of the blogs on the board, you inevitably arrive at the following conclusion up here on the board. A grateful person is a giving person. A grateful person is a giving person. You ever notice that? Why? Because their gratitude overflows in the form of grace towards others. I'm so grateful to have something that was just given to me, this undeserving fool, that I'll show, I'll grace others out. I want others to have this blessing. I want to pour into someone else's cup so that they have the same sense as I do right now that I realize God's love for me as an expression of his grace. I want others to realize that. I want to be in the path. I want him to be pleased with me, with my life. I want to be pleasing to him. So I want to be part of this grace economy. Yeah, a grateful person is a giving person because their gratitude overflows in the form of grace towards others. And that really is love behind the scenes. Not necessarily the giving part, because one can, you know, one can become confused by heartless giving. That's something the world does. You know, I, I'm thinking of bad parenting right now, where the parent says, don't you know I love you? Here, here's some money. You know, get out of my hair. That's not love. That's a counterfeit. The motivation has to be there behind the giving. The motivation has to be behind the giving. Not surprisingly, the apostle of love, John, again, is going to help us out with this. Go to John 15, verse 11. John 15, verse 11. That's why we have, you know, that's why we colloquially call him the, the, the apostle of love because John had a lot to say on the topic of love. Look at how he says it. So beautiful. John 15, verse 11. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, 
that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater, this is Jesus speaking, of course. Greater love is no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Beautiful. That your joy may be full. This is my commandment. Remember the commandment, the law today is love. That you love one another as I have loved you. Remember, his commandments are not burdensome. And as a matter of fact, when you abide in his commandments, you enjoy the fruit of being righteous, which the pinnacle, as we talked about already, is love. So you can see how all these things come together. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. I want you to partake in my economy. Greater love is no one than this, that someone lay down his love, uh, life for his friends. In other words, pour your love into the lap of someone else. Can you see the flow again? There it is. This is the great dynamic. When love is enlarged this way, the giver is blessed. I hope you see the dynamic. Stated differently, if you want to be blessed, then give. If you want to be blessed, then give. Deeper than that, if you want to be a giver, then learn to be grateful. Because you can give with false motivation, therefore it's a counterfeit, therefore you are not blessed. That's wood, hay, and straw. Right? So it's not enough just to give. He wants you to give with proper motivation. Remember, he sees the heart. So if you want to be, bl if you want to be blessed, you've got to give. But if you want to be a giver, someone who gives, you have to be grateful. You have to learn what it means to be grateful. Up here on the board, again, grateful person is a giving person. There you go. A grateful person is a giving person. Hey. What? Where are you going? What? One more. Come on, man. One more. Forward. Oh, did I skip it? Did I not? No, there it is. What an amateur, man. You know? A grateful person is a giving person. Here's another snippet from one of our recent blogs that describes what the Spirit's getting at right now. Of course, it's not going to be a mystery. <laughs> Next slide, sir. <laughs> right? How long does gratitude last? That was the blog. It is good to live a life of gratitude. You know? Not just moments, not just things that you're doing so you can, you know, tick them off. Oh, look what I did. Look what I did. Look what I did. Look what I did this Christmas. Look what I did this Christmas. Look at, no, 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 no. That's religion. That's just looking to compile some list of things that you can point to rather than actually living a life of gratitude. There's a difference. There's, there's someone that's trying to be religious, and then there's pure religion. It is good to live a life of gratitude. We are blessed by it, and God is glorified. So that's a good place. Yeah, we've got some time. That's a good place to segue into our primary course of study. So all of that was a review of the past you know, two, three weeks, a lot of special stuff, blogs even pointing towards 
a certain something. Um, one area that we have to be very grateful for, and this is taking us back to Proverbs 17, is family. Now, whether or not your family is perfect, nobody's family is perfect, right? I love that saying. Maybe you're sick of hearing me say it, but the only normal family is the one you don't know, right? So don't be condemned. This is the high watermark. This is the standard. This is where perfect blessings are achieved. But we do know that from God's perspective, the biblical perspective, one area we have to be very grateful for is family. As the Bible teaches us, families are designed by God to be a source of blessing. They're designed by him to be a source of blessing. It doesn't mean we can't muck it up, because God, you know, God knows we do. It doesn't mean we can't mess it up. But that doesn't change the simple fact that families were designed by God to be blessings for us and to bring glory to him. It doesn't change the fact. How messed up your family is, how not messed up it, it doesn't change the fact that this is God's standard and this is his will. Families were designed to bless us out. They were meant to be that place, almost like a, a point of, of coming together so that we could have righteous fruit. And that's how he designed it. So let's reconnect with our primary course of study now and pick up where we left off with it before the special on giving, which is a couple weeks back. Go to Proverbs 17, verse 6. So we're going back to our primary course of study. The series is titled Proverbs 17, Wisdom. After all, I think we're on part 46 now. Imagine that, 46 parts and we're on verse 6. What? Proverbs 17, verse 6. We have been spending a lot of time on family, though. Grandchildren are the crown of the aged, and the glory of children is their fathers. So the immediate practical question the Spirit's been asking us to ask ourselves is up here on the board. Okay, if, if families were meant to be blessing to me and everyone else in God's economy, then you have to ask, is my little collective in God's economy, right? Because you look at, maybe there's a, you know, a dotted line around three or four or two or you know, 20 cops. I don't know, depending on the size of your family. A little dotted line around your family structure within God's economy, right? Is my little microcosm of life, my family, is it godly? Is it godly? And the great litmus test, as we've seen up here on the board, is love. Well, how do I know my family is godly? Well, does love exist there? So a few messages back, we started a quick survey of Holy Scripture on the topic of love with the end goal of framing up the answer to the question on the table, is my, God, or is, is my family godly? And if the proof point is love, then we ought to have a little refresher course on what love is. Do these things exist in my family? If this is the biblical definition of love, if this is what love looks like, 
Does it exist in my family? Not perfectly, but does it exist in some way, shape, or form? Because perfection's off the table. We'll never be perfect. We can mature, but we're never perfect at loving anyone. But do we see these things in our family? Do we see love? So in order to understand the linchpin to the question, or to this question, is my family godly, which is love, the linchpin is love, we have to first discover what the Bible has to say about the topic of love. We've already reviewed much of what the Spirit had us cover, or wanted us to cover, but since we covered new ground last time, which is a couple few weeks ago now, let me give you those passages a second time up here on the board. I'll go quickly. We've seen all these firsthand in our Bibles. Hebrews 10, 24, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Because that's what love does, you know? That's what love does. Uh, you know, the Bible says, you know, love covers a multitude of sin. When someone transgresses against you, are you a unforgiving brat? Because that's not love. Or do you forgive like Christ forgave you? Because that's love. So you stir up one another. You know, if you're the person on the bottom rung, feeling a little bit beat down because you just transgressed against someone, the greatest gift they can give you is their forgiveness. They say, they extend their hand. They say, come on, stand up, right? I appreciate you coming to me and asking for forgiveness, but I forgive you. That's a beautiful transaction of grace and an expression of love. And it stirs the soul. You understand? So that's Hebrews 10.24. How about up here on the board, Hebrews 13.1. Let brotherly love continue. Let that dynamic in your little microcosm, let it continue. Let it flow freely. Up here on the board, 1 John 3.18. Little children, let us not love in word or talk. I alluded to this earlier. But in deed and in truth, don't just do this. Oh, I love, you know, like the Bible, like we read earlier, you know, um, I just got distracted by some. I forgot to shut off my wireless and people are texting me. My bad. My apologies. Little children, up here on the board again. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. In deed and in truth. Don't just talk the talk, but walk the walk. Up here on the board, 1 John 4, 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So that's just a quick survey of love in the Bible, which was meant to help us all answer the question, the big question. Okay, if that's what love looks like, if that's God's intention, his modus operandi, his expression of love, it looks like this. The question on the board then, up here on the board, is my family godly? Is my family like that? The answer depends on the presence of the tie that binds a godly family together. Up here on the board, love. So again, arguably, nowhere is this dependence upon godly love more evident than in our homes. It's a perfect little 
I don't want to call it petri dish, but you know what I'm saying? It's a little micro, it's like perfect. We don't even have to look at the entirety of God's economy. What God has done for us, which is beautiful, is he said, I'm going to bring you up in this little microcosm called a family. Right? I'm going to teach you about the circulation of love. You know, let brotherly love continue. I'm going to teach you about the flow of grace and love in this little construct, this institution that I've designed to bring glory to me called family. Called family. I'm going to show you what my love looks like. I'm going to teach you about my economy. I'm going to teach you about what it means to be blessed out in this little microcosm. You don't have to boil the ocean. That's called family. Okay? So it's, I mean, you could argue, nowhere is this dependence on love, upon godly love, more evident than in our homes. So practically speaking, our families become the focal point of a collective of love being realized in time by each member of the family construct. And it's a beautiful thing to see. That's the way God educates us. You see? It's why so many godly people who exude confidence and strength are actually grounded in faithful families that love one another. Let me say that again. It's why so many godly people who exude confidence and strength are actually grounded in faithful families that love one another. Think about that. Have you ever noticed what I'm talking about? You kind of know it when you see it. You say, where is all that confidence and strength coming from? Oh, they were raised in a godly family. It might be absent, and you say, oh, apparently it was missing. And it usually is. And so there's a blessing that you can even see. People who rear up from godly families have, I don't know how any, else, any other way to say it, but an extra gear. Right? Um, so to speak, when it, when it comes to confidence, they have that little extra something. When it comes to confidence, they're not broken, they're self-assured. I should say Christ-assured. They're not broken. They're not weak. They're strong. I used to always think of Deacon Johnson that way because I've known him since I was, what, 12? And I was just saying, man, how is he so strong and confident? And then I met his family, Bill and Lois. I'm like, no wonder. They actually sit around having dinner studying the Bible. Not at church, in their home. No wonder why he's got that thing. No wonder why it's obvious. No wonder why he's secure in who he is. Because he comes from a family structure that pivoted around Christ. Is that fair, DJ? Yeah. It's honest to God truth. Not everybody has that. But it's obvious when you see it. Why? At the end of the day, they know they are loved. 
that love that fills their cup started very early on. And their family structure taught them about that love. It didn't teach them how to be insecure. It taught them how to be secure. You know, I was thinking about that. You know, a really, a really bad day outside of that home is always met with love inside the home. So they might run off, have a terrible day. But when they come home, they're like, oh, I'm grounded again. Like, I, 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 got, I went out in the world, I got beat up, but I get to come back to that home. And when you know that you have that place of rest and healing, you're more of a lion when you set out side of the home. You're more courageous. And what is courage, as I've taught you in the past, Courage is nothing more than applied faith. You're more courageous to go out and venture out. Be that warrior, that soldier for Christ. Because you know you can come back beaten and battered. And every time you come back to a home where you can rest. That's love. That's love. Really bad day outside of the home is always met with love inside the home. These folks learn familial love, which is godly, from those in their household, their homes, unlike many folks who have had to learn later on in life because their families were all but devoid of godliness, never mind love. And so... That's the power of a godly family. That's the power of it. Why do you think Satan in the kingdom of darkness tries to blow up godly marriages and families? Why do you think he tries to do it? Because he doesn't want lions going out acting like Christ. He doesn't want that kind of confidence to exist outside of the home. He doesn't want that thing to happen. Because they make great evangelists. They make great examples. They're ambassadors for Christ. They're wonderful illustrations of what godly love can do to a person, for a person. He doesn't want that. So he tries to blow it all up. Tries to blow it up. That's the, that's the training, you know? That's, like, that's, the, that's the training grounds. For the future of the church, even, if you want to think of it in that way, that's the training ground. If I can blow that up, look at America. Look at America. How many families do you know are actually godly? How many families do you know open up their Bibles even together, ever? How many families do you know actually talk about the Word of God? Like openly in the home as a status quo, as a, a thing, as, you know, not just a line of them, hey, wasn't church great today? No, as a sense of being, as the atomic, as the nucleus of the family structure. How many families are like that that you know? Very few. Very, very few. That is why America is in disarray. 
That is why. You can blame the politicians. You can blame the democracy. You can blame socialists. You can blame whoever you want. One thing. Here's Christ. Here's America. And this is what's happening. America's moving away from Christ. And the more, the more quickly they move, America moves away from Christ, the worse it's going to get. It's that simple. Done. Satan has completely infiltrated marriage, family, children, the whole of it. That little microcosm, little mushroom cloud. Boom, decimated. That's it. Kids don't know. Kids aren't secure. That's what, I don't know what the statistics are, but it, seems, it feels like everyone has some kind of disorder now. Children have disorders out the kazoo. Nobody has any sense of security. Everybody's rather filled with some kind of anxiety. Why? Why don't they, why don't they have that thing? What happened to that, that thing I described with like DJ? Why don't they have that thing anymore? Like, because Satan's done a really good job at blowing up the training ground. Some of you are like, yep, that was my life. There was no such thing as a training ground in my life. For me, it was survival. I just had to survive my childhood. And then later on, God hooked them up. It's okay. I can use that too. But if we look at family in those terms, we see the power of it. That's the point. We see the power of of family, the way God designed it to be. Satan hates it. So for the children in that family, they are immediately blessed by association with their parents, their grandparents, etc. Think of Proverbs 17.6. They're immediately blessed by this little ecosystem called family, generationally even. And this is a result of people that are actually saved and we're taking this from a believer's perspective. It's because as a side note, remember, children are born depraved. Their introduction to godly love is through family. In other words, they, quote, see God in those closest to them. That is the way God has designed it. Does this always happen? I mean, we know it doesn't. We know it doesn't. It's not a, we can screw anything up. But that's the way God designed it. You see. Is it sad to think about, you know, like missed opportunities like that? Yeah. But the point is that God uses godly families to teach children about his love from a very practical perspective. He uses that family construct as a, pra as a vehicle. So he teaches, you know, he uses godly families to teach children about his love, because they're born depraved. <clears throat> and so in that, in that microcosm called, called family, there's a lot of evangelism going on. Through example. Right? So he uses it in a very practical way. What I've just described is a very specific set of circumstances that God has orchestrated to his glory. 
In other words, the divine institutions of marriage and family are actually platforms. They're actually the platforms God uses to teach others about his love. They're the platforms that he uses. So, a little perspective, so that we don't become twisted about this. Godly families aren't the end goal. They are the vehicle, the, the context for love to shine. Does that make sense? The ultimate goal is that love shines. That we learn about his economy through godly families. That's the perspective. So you don't run out and you know, create a godly family just to say, I have a godly family. <laughs> it's so that something supernatural, something supreme, transcendent happens in that construct called family. It's so that it provides a construct, or the context, if you would, for love to shine. Because ultimately, that's what God wants to happen. Because there's a little, there's a few rugrats maybe in there that are still unsaved, that need to see what godly love looks like. That whole thing. So just some added perspective. Children are able to, quote, see him through the love that flows out of their godly parents or their grandparents or their siblings. Remember all that we studied? You know, how do we see him? How do, how do people see the Lord? How do we see God? Well, you see him in others. And in a family, it's a perfect little microcosm, right? It's a perfect little construct for this to happen, where children first see him through their parents. I'll end with this. For others in the family who are already saved, they get to enjoy the blessings of being surrounded by others who share the same heart for Christ as they do. So that's the beauty of family. Did we all hit it, the ball out of the park? No. Many of us, I know, because I know most, most of you personally, many of us don't, didn't grow up with that. We just didn't. And so, you know, we had to come later to Christ. We had to learn what true love actually looks like later on in life. That's okay, too. Because you're here now. But we do need to understand what God's intention is for family. What the divine standard actually is and why it's set that way. Amen? All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this incredible privilege of studying your word. Your word is truth, Father, and it sets us free. We just ask for your blessings as we take the things we've learned back to the privacy of our homes, our families. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.